0: the first step in making an excellent film is attitude if you go down a checklist of the technical things that are critically considered necessary for good filmmaking and good storytelling following modern conventions of cinematography and lighting and acting and screenwriting you can make a competent movie but if you want something everlasting and exceptional you need the kind of reverence for the material and for the character that david goyer and christopher nolan clearly have batman begins works on every level But what it excels most at is making this not just a good batman movie but a good movie it doesn't feel like it was made for superhero fans it was made for fans of movies people who want a good drama a believable and emotional experience that makes them care for the characters involved and get sucked into the universe with them that's hard to do and it's even harder when there's such a stigma attached to superhero movies before batman begins i'd say a lot of people knew what the superhero movie formula was Some of them probably didn't feel the need to ever see another one, because they thought once they had seen a few, they'd seen them all. Yes, it's about someone who puts on a costume and tries to save the world, like the Batman movies that came before it. But that's secondary to the personal story of a man who feels in his deepest core that he must do something to change the world, and the complexities in his life that leads him to that place. I'm going to approach this review as usual, with an emphasis on the characterization and the ideas the film puts forth. But I'd like to briefly tackle the movie against its source material, because it would be remiss not to mention that, given that this is not only a reboot, but it's the reboot that really started the recent boom of movie reboots. I would say it's a model that led to the reboots like James Bond, Star Trek, and future franchises like Spider-Man and Superman. I think Batman Begins is one of those movies that employs a lot of things that work better in practice than they do on paper as opposed to what happens more often, something that's great conceptually but not so good in execution. Some things just looked weird to me when I saw the advertising before the film was released, because I didn't see them in context. I was immediately against the tumbler. Why is Batman driving around in a tank? How do Scarecrow and Razal Ghoul fit together in the same movie? Isn't Batman Begins kind of a silly and obvious title? I couldn't understand why they wouldn't go with something like Batman Year One until I realized the scope and time span of the film. All of these elements work great in the context of the movie. Batman has been around for more than 70 years, and with that comes a lot of different interpretations of the character. He's such a deep part of our culture now that most people have heard of him, and most people have their version of Batman. I really stand behind the idea that a well-made movie is still a well-made movie, regardless of what you like. I don't like Apocalypse Now. That is an incredibly difficult film for me to watch. But I understand why it's on the American Film Institute's top 100 movies of all time. I respect anyone who doesn't like the Christopher Nolan Batman because it isn't their Batman. Some people didn't want to see Batman's origin on film. Some prefer Batman to be a more mysterious character, kept in the shadows, an idea Tim Burton really founded his franchise on. Some people find it to be too serious and too brooding. Some people like a less realistic universe, where maybe Batman himself is kept serious, but he deals with threats that are more supernatural in origin. Still others, like myself might appreciate more of an emphasis on the world's greatest detective idea. Here he seems to be less of a detective and more of a ninja. But whatever a viewer's taste, the movie was made with a lot of heart and soul, and it does an excellent job of exploring several aspects of a central theme while still telling a story about a character that is made very real and relatable. It isn't what every person wants in a Batman story, but that would be impossible. I argue against origin stories a lot in superhero films, and this is a big exception for me. I had a creative writing professor once who said that anything can work, you just have to make it work. Basically, that means that if something is is overdone as the superhero origin story, you have to work that much harder to make it not feel overdone in your movie. Batman's a different animal than something like Superman or Spider-Man, because Batman doesn't have that same kind of definitive origin. We've seen Superman and Spider-Man's origin again and again. Everyone knows the main thing about Batman. His parents got shot, so he became Batman. But there's a lot more to it than that if your character doesn't have superpowers. How does Bruce Wayne get the skills that make him such a gifted crime fighter? Where does his drive and determination come from? Prior to Batman Begins, there were pieces of origin, but there was a big gap. We knew Bruce traveled the world for several years, but we weren't sure exactly where he went or what he did. So Batman Begins does the best thing a film can do that's based on source material but telling its own unique story— It adds something to the mythos, while also borrowing from and showing reverence to what was already there. The movie draws plot, style, and ambiance from several Batman stories, especially Year One and The Long Halloween, and it uses the most crucial Scarecrow and Ra's al Ghul stories to help shape and recreate those characters on the screen. At the same time, it creates an entirely new Batman universe for the screen, one that many viewers have called a highly realistic take on the character, albeit a heightened reality. The movie never looks like it's shot on a set, There's a lot of location shooting, a lot of practical effects, and anything built is made to look real. Oh, and from my understanding, anything you see the Tumbler do in the film, that car really does. We aren't given any indication here that anything supernatural is part of this universe. There are some elements of science fiction, however, with some technology that seems possible but isn't necessarily in existence at the moment, such as the microwave emitter that can vaporize an entire city's water supply. And Batman Begins does what the best science fiction does. It explores reality by ramping it up and showing aspects of reality in its purest form. Fiction can expose hidden truths by showing things at their most extreme, like George Orwell did with 1984. In this case, that also ironically helps Batman to make more sense because he's made to feel more necessary than he perhaps would seem in the real world. Gotham City represents any large American city. It's Chicago, it's Detroit, or it's New York City. It's any place with crime and corruption, but it's worse than all of them. This Gotham's crime is nearly all run by one mob boss, Carmine Falcone. Nearly all of its police are corrupt, and so are a lot of its politicians and civil workers. The police are part of the problem, and that's why someone like Batman is necessary. The movie also provides a good case for the idea that one man can make a difference. Bruce creates Batman not just to strike fear into the hearts of criminals, but to make a statement to the good people in Gotham, whom he strongly believes exist but as he says to alfred need dramatic examples to shake them out of apathy i mentioned science fiction to illustrate how the film is working as a heightened reality but it's mostly a complex crime drama at first there seem to be several villain plots happening at once until we realize that each is just one piece in a larger puzzle raz al ghul and the league of shadows want to destroy gotham because they believe it's corrupt and beyond saving dr crane is one of gotham's corrupt civil workers the manager of Arkham Asylum, who's working for Ra's al Ghul, whom he mistakenly believes wants to hold the city for ransom, and he's just doing it for the money. He's using Carmine Falcone, who pulls the strings of the city's criminal underground, to help smuggle the drugs into the city that he, in turn, is weaponizing for Raz. And even Joe Chill, the man who murdered Bruce's parents, is wrapped up in this web of crime. He was driven to desperation by the Depression, which, we discovered by the end of the film, was actually caused by the League of Shadows. What makes the origin story work, besides the fact that it is indeed interesting to see how a mortal man becomes a legend like Batman, is that it isn't just a contrivance, as I often say, to get the ball rolling. Here, it's one complete, intricately woven story. It spans a lot of years, but every element is vital to the whole. Nolan is a master at nonlinear storytelling. He gives us what we need when we need it. And though for the first 40 minutes or so, the scenes aren't presented in chronological order, they aren't difficult to follow when there's a logic to their order. It isn't like the first Superman film, which is an epic in three parts. This film is more fluid, though it's still an opus that stretches a lot of time. It's impressive how cohesive it is, and that very little feels contrived. For instance, how do you make Scarecrow and Ra's al Ghul work in the same movie? You don't do a traditional supervillain team-up. You make the lesser villain work for the stronger villain as a cog in a machine, and you never put them on screen together. The movie explores Batman's greatest asset, fear and it uses each of its major characters to showcase a different aspect of fear and how fear can be used. Batman represents fear as a motivator. He uses fear to frighten his enemies, and he uses a symbol of fear to motivate others to take action against corruption. He's a representation of overcoming fear. He's afraid of bats, and he becomes the thing he's most afraid of. The symbolism of the bat is very complex, and I could probably write a whole paper on it. As a child, Bruce falls into a well and is attacked by bats, which begins his phobia. He sees an opera with his parents featuring bats, and it frightens him. He blames himself for his parents' murder because it was his fear of bats that caused them to leave the theater. So Bruce ultimately uses the bat as a symbol of strength, turning a negative into a positive. It's unclear if he ever truly gets over his guilt, or if he just uses it as a motivator. And by the way, this isn't the Batman who makes a vow to his parents to avenge their deaths by stopping people like their murderer, as he is in Batman the Animated Series. This Batman is motivated by their murder to take a stance against the corrupt society that bred the man who killed them, which I think is what really distinguishes Nolan's Batman from other versions. He doesn't just patrol the streets righting wrongs. He's trying to change the city itself from the inside. The bats illustrate his complex psychology. They're both his strength and his weakness. Raz al Ghul is my favorite kind of villain. He represents what Batman could be if he went too far. They both have the same goals, but fundamental differences in their morality. Raz represents fear as a destructive agent. He tried to use fear to make Gotham citizens tear their city apart with the Depression. When that doesn't work, he literally uses fear to destroy them by drugging them with a fear toxin to turn them insane. The real-life application is that if people don't learn the discipline to overcome their fears, they will consume them. And from Raz's perspective, Gotham is doomed because its citizens are either too afraid to turn things around or afraid to the point of desperation and therefore dangerous. Carmine Falcone and Scarecrow both represent fear as a manipulator. Raz does also, to a point, he preys on the fear corrupt people already have to hasten their destruction. But Carmine Falcone and Scarecrow create fear in order to use people to get what they want. Falcone uses politicians and the police to ensure his own security and to gain more power. Scarecrow uses his fear toxin to manipulate the public into believing certain criminals are insane and that others aren't, moving players around as if on a game board, and getting special favors from people in charge. Falcone tells Bruce, you always fear what you don't understand, and that's the idea that keeps both he and Crane in business. It also ironically takes them both out of play. Batman uses the same idea against each of them. There's a complex father-son motif working throughout the movie that's also part of this exploration of fear. Bruce's father, Thomas Wayne, is sympathetic toward his bat phobia, but he wants to help him overcome it. He has one of the great lines that is echoed throughout the movie. Why do we fall? So we can learn to pick ourselves up. Mistakes often happen through fear, and overcoming our fears can help us to learn from our mistakes. The line is made literal and figurative. When Thomas says it, it's after Bruce has fallen into the well as a child. Toward the end of the movie, Alfred says it after he and Bruce have dropped in the elevator down into the cave, when Roz sets Wayne Manor ablaze. Here, Bruce feels he's failed himself and his father's legacy. First, he's disgraced his family's name by making a fool of himself at his birthday party in order to make everyone leave, knowing that they're in danger from Roz. He lets Roz burn his father's house to the ground, and he must at least partially blame himself for the fact that Roz is about to destroy Gotham, since he trusted Roz and saved him when he burned Roz's house to the ground. So he's also fallen in the sense that he's failed on several levels. Thomas's last words to his son just before he dies are, don't be afraid. I think one way to interpret this might be, overcome your fears and learn from your mistakes. Now, I don't think he's blaming Bruce for his death. It's just an important life lesson he's constantly trying to teach his son and so that's the last thing he says to him bruce interprets it perhaps differently from how it was intended he sees his parents death as his mistake and rectifying that mistake means becoming batman and trying to save gotham as his father did when bruce's father dies he has multiple father figures to take his place which adds an extra dimension to the movie Alfred is obviously his real surrogate father, the man who raised Bruce with the same principles of integrity and compassion that his father did, and he remains Bruce's voice of reason throughout the movie. He's there to say what his father might say were he still alive, and that's why he echoes Bruce's father during the fire scene. He reminds Bruce that he can't make Batman personal after the chase scene in the Tumblr. Batman is reckless because Rachel is in danger, but Alfred says if he makes it personal, he becomes nothing more than a vigilante. And he also tells Bruce not to destroy his father's name. And when Bruce does exactly that, Alfred echoes his own line from earlier in the film, when Bruce says, You still haven't given up on me. And Alfred says, Never. The principle is that no matter the mistake, a father never gives up on his child. And that's what makes Alfred the real father figure. But Roz, in the guise of Descartes at the beginning of the film, wants to fulfill this role too. But rather than leading Bruce by a similar example to his father's as Alfred does... He tries to instill in him a different set of values. Roz is the one who helps Bruce to purge his fears. He gives him the physical and mental training that will serve him later as Batman. But he's the kind of father figure that the son has to move away from, because while he's instrumental in Bruce's progression, he wants Bruce to be something he won't allow himself to become, an executioner. They both want the same thing, but Roz sees the world differently than Bruce. Roz repeatedly uses the phrase, all that is necessary, throughout the film. He says Bruce's father died because he didn't do all that was necessary. Toward the end, he says Bruce lacks the will to do all that is necessary. Their goals are different, but the same. They both want to save the world, but each has a different idea as to who can be saved and what line should be drawn. Bruce is willing to do all that is necessary to achieve his goal, because, as I mentioned earlier, he wants to inspire people into action, not to destroy entire cities that don't conform to his idea of justice. When he burns down the house of the League of Shadows, he tells Roz he is doing what is necessary. He's doing what he must to survive, and to use what he has learned to bring justice to the world, but not the way Roz would. It's a very profound moment when Roz echoes Bruce's father on the train and says, Don't be afraid. Even now, in this fight to the death and with Gotham's destruction imminent, Roz sees himself as Bruce's father figure. And if Bruce interprets this the way I suggested earlier, if he's listening to his father's voice and not Roz's, He's hearing something different from the irony Roz intends as he's about to end the life of his greatest student. Don't be afraid. Overcome your fears. Learn from your mistakes. You've fallen. Now pick yourself up. Bruce learns from his mistakes, and he uses his surroundings on the train to his advantage just as Roz taught him. He gets the upper hand. And he says, I'm not going to kill you, but I don't have to save you. Now this is a tough one, but it's consistent. It was hard for me to watch Batman refuse to save someone, but he has to learn from his mistakes. He has to do what is necessary. He saved this man, and he brought destruction to Gotham. If he takes Roz with him, he might start the whole thing all over again. I've wrestled with this question a lot. If Batman doesn't save Roz from certain doom, is it or is it not the same as killing him? I'm honestly not sure, but that's what makes this film so great. It can be viewed on a lot of levels. Was it a mistake for Bruce to leave Raz alive in the first place? Should he have saved him in the end on the principle that no one should be left to die? Is he no better than Raz because he ultimately succumbed to the ideal of the end is justifying the means? Or is this a rare exception where the lines are blurred and there is no right answer? The film leaves that up to the viewer. The movie does an excellent job of creating such a multi-layered character in Raza especially considering how little overall screen time he has. He bookends the film and is missing through most of the middle section. And it's a great reveal when we find that Ducard was Raz all along, and that the man who died in the fire on the mountain, who was dressed a lot more like the comic book Raz, was actually a decoy. I've never seen a marketing campaign handled so well with something like this either. The first wave of action figures had Razal al Ghul figures with Ken Watanabe's likeness. And only well after the movie's release were there figures called Raza Ghul that looked like Liam Neeson. And Ken Watanabe was featured a lot in the advertising. And although he isn't Roz, his performance is excellent. He brings a lot of presence to the screen and has a dark confidence that makes him appear very much in charge. I also like the subtle nods to the supernatural nature of Ra's al Ghul from the comics in the scene just before Wayne Manor is burned to the ground. When he reveals himself to Bruce, he says, is Ra's al Ghul immortal? Is he supernatural? To which Bruce responds, "Or just cheap parlor tricks. We never get a straight answer. It seems Bruce's line is meant to be correct, but who knows? When Ross talks about the League of Shadows loading up plague ships with rats and sacking Rome, he sounds almost as if he was there personally. And if you know the character from the comics, there's just enough of that sort of thing where you have to wonder if he somehow survived the train wreck at the end and was taken back to a Lazarus pit by the League of Shadows. Now, I doubt it. My guess is that in Nolan's mind, this is a completely unsupernatural universe that doesn't have Lazarus pits. But I like that nothing contradicts the possibility either and that Roz is just mysterious enough that the possibility is there for any fans who'd like to speculate about it. All the psychology, symbolism, and metaphor is really interesting, but it's also a really fun and entertaining film. I like how tastefully made it is. It's very serious and has some dark themes, yet there's no blood or gore, and the violence is minimalistic. Nolan leaves a lot to the viewer's imagination. He shows us a lot of great images on the screen, but he also wants to plan ideas in our head so we can fill in the blanks. I understand the criticism that the fights are up too close and hard to see, but I personally think that's a stylistic choice that makes a lot of sense with this film. You'll notice that in The Dark Knight, there's a little more choreography and we're allowed to see Batman fight a little more. I think Nolan was making a statement here in this first film. This movie isn't about watching Batman beat people up. That happens because it has to. He's Batman. But you don't need to see a lot of it. The movie is about characters and ideas, so that's what he focuses on. The movie has a lot of tender moments and is good humored. When there are jokes, they're clever, well-timed, and serve characters rather than serving some script necessity of comic relief. We can laugh without being taken out of the serious world we're in. A lot of the comedy comes from Alfred and Lucius, and they're both dry and subtle. Lucius's lines are especially well-crafted because they join together to create a running gag. Bruce refusing to tell him he's Batman, but Lucius knowing there's obviously something going on beyond a rich guy playing with toys. It has very little gratuitous action. For the most part, when there's fighting or jumping off rooftops or rappelling, it's part of the story and it feels necessary. The exception to that is the Tumblr chase scene. The movie tries its best to make this necessary, but it ultimately comes off to me as an excuse for a chase scene. I can't complain too much because I love watching the tumbler driving over rooftops, and it's wonderfully well-crafted. I also think that the movie is working so hard to keep us thinking about its ideas and to keep us guessing about its mysteries that this is a welcome picking up of the pace. Batman is desperate because Rachel is in trouble. She's been gassed with fear toxin, and he has to get her back to the cave. He's making her a priority, so he's not worried about anyone who gets in the way. Perhaps this is even part of the doing-all-that-is-necessary motif. Still, he just got away from an entire SWAT team without being caught. It seems like he should be able to get back to his cave with a woman without putting so many people in danger. At the same time, this is Batman Begins. He's still new at this. He's going to make mistakes. And his arc is all about making mistakes, having fears, and getting over them. One of those lessons is staying level-headed while someone he cares for is in danger. But still, it's a little convenient that, as Alfred points out, no one was hurt. I played the Batman Begins video game, which has a section where you basically play through this scene, and as you're knocking over cop cars, there's a flashing alert in the corner that keeps saying zero casualties. I like all the things that shouldn't work in this continuity and do because of cleverly logical reasons. Scarecrow doesn't wear a costume, but he has a mask which helps him frighten his patients with a fear toxin. Alfred doesn't know how to do everything like he does in the comics. Lucius Fox is given some of his responsibilities, like coming up with his gadgets and synthesizing an antidote for a hallucinogen. And of course, he doesn't create everything. He's in charge of a department that collects weapons and gear no longer in development. It's maybe a little convenient, but it makes more sense than Bruce Wayne creating everything on his own. Bruce has to order some of the pieces to his bat suit in bulk, and separately so no one gets suspicious of what he's doing. There are a lot of examples of things like this. I haven't talked about casting, but like the other supporting characters, Gary Oldman's Gordon is spot on, and he's a spitting image from the character in the comics. He's honest, he's likable, he's competent, but he's also in over his head, and he can't get anywhere on his own, wanting to fix the corrupt police department. I like that Bruce already has a connection with him. Gordon was the cop who met Bruce at the police station after his parents were murdered. I like how much he gets to do in this movie. He doesn't just give Batman leads on crimes, he partners up with him and helps him do the tough stuff not the least of which involves driving the Batmobile. One of the few weak links is perhaps Rachel Dawes. A lot of people don't like Katie Holmes, and I personally think she's okay in the role, but it's not an especially strong role in my opinion. I do like that she a more subtle love interest than a lot of superhero movies have. She and Bruce aren't trying to have a romance in the middle of everything else that's happening. She does provide one of the major themes of the film, with her line, It's not who you are underneath, but what you do that defines you which again, like all of its important ideas, is echoed again later by Batman himself, who uses it to reveal to her that he is indeed Bruce Wayne. It's a good message, but it's also a good representation of the Batman character. The stuff Batman does that matters is as Batman, and as Rachel points out at the end, Bruce Wayne is the mask. Batman is his true face. But Rachel herself, beyond being the conduit for this idea, really serves as the damsel in distress. I would have liked to have seen her take care of herself more, She has a taser, and she isn't afraid to stand up to people. I wouldn't even say that she's not a strong female character, but she's falling a little bit into that stereotyped role as the woman Batman inevitably must save, whom he's also in love with, and happens to take back to the Batcave. I like that he didn't just meet her, that they've been friends from childhood. And it's good that she's intimately involved with what's happening with all the crime drama. She's an assistant DA, and she's dealing with cases involving both Crane and Falcone. I don't know, perhaps giving Batman a love interest at all just seems a little unnecessary in this film. Several movies since this, I think, have copied the sound, and that's because it creates a sense of immediacy and intensity. It doesn't feel like music so much as a sound that's part of the world you're experiencing. Sometimes the sounds come from the right then the left then all at once, and it becomes more of an experience than a movie. This is really the odyssey of Bruce Wayne, and the sound makes the movie bigger, more of a journey, with deeply disturbing noise when you're hit with fear toxin, really tender melodies when you're flashing back to good memories of Bruce's father, really intense sound when you're on the train with Razal Ghoul. Ghul. I feel like it gets a little overlooked now, after the success of The Dark Knight, which is partly why I felt the need to do such a thorough analysis. <laughs> Sorry it's so long. It's in many ways the Batman I always wanted to see on screen. I understand some of the things people don't like about it, but I think Nolan is like Pixar. He hasn't made a bad film yet, and most of them I was deeply impressed with. This movie finally gave a live-action Batman dimension on screen, and it's wonderfully thought-provoking. It's one of my favorite films of all time. And no big surprise, I'm giving Batman Begins a 4 out of 4.